introducing something that we have, well, I guess reintroducing something that we've done before, and that's do a documentary review. So I'm calling it We Talked About This Movie Club. And today we got Salim and Justin on board with us to give what I'll call a reaction to a documentary that we just watched and hope that some of our listeners have also watched. That's The Pharmacist. And just to, uh, well, first of all, hello, gentlemen. Hello. (laughs) Good to be back. Hello. Glad to be back. Yeah. Same here. Uh, We talked about this about a month ago, I think, that uh, I had originally watched The Pharmacist and was just, the reaction I had to it was was just, wow. It was astounding to me that this... um, about the, the story of Dan Schneider. Dan Schneider, the far, this is the central character in, in The Pharmacist. And I'll tee it up here. It's an American true crime documentary series produced by the Cinemart. It was released in February 2020 on Netflix. The series relates the efforts of Dan Schneider, a small-town pharmacist just outside of New Orleans, Louisiana, to identify his son's killer, and how this led to his gathering of evidence against a prolific pill mill doctor in New Orleans. When this documentary first got recommended to me by my father, we were talking back and forth about different documentaries that we were watching, and he said, have you seen The Pharmacist? I said, no. And he said, oh, it's, you, know, you should. And I, I gave it a whirl uh, initially, and I was probably five minutes into it. And I just, I couldn't do it. I just, I'm I'm not mentally able to comprehend this story. Not exactly child-friendly either, putting that out there. No, it's it's not. And I, you know, I then got up the the courage, if you will, to watch it again. Mm -hmm. Um, And my wife happened to be in in the area as I was watching. I'm like, there's no way she's going to want to watch this. And she suddenly... was sitting down next to me and we were both just gripped by the whole thing. And there we go. uh, Four episodes. I think we watched it over a period of a week or so. Emotional, some of the facts and figures that came out of this, which we'll probably be sharing. But I, I really think this was an important documentary to watch for me. And I just, maybe we'll just start. Like there's my quick, reaction initial reaction to this what about you guys what uh how did you feel when you you first turned this one on yeah so your first reaction was wow right and i I think very similarly i it's a it's an overwhelming documentary there's a lot that gets covered in these four episodes it was a bit from my from my view disjointed to they they kind of about an episode and a half is more focused on the initial episode with his son and what happens to his son. And then the, the last two, two and a half episodes are more about the opioid crisis and what he ends up chasing down. It's a bit overwhelming too, because the central figure, and I think part of the reason why maybe if I can, you know, extrapolate or guess why your wife and you kind of got locked in he's compelling. He's so energetic. He's so go, go, go. And, you know, we'll get into, as you said later, a little bit more about Dan Schneider, the, the father, Dan Schneider, senior, the pharmacist, but this guy is, is intense. And I, I think in, in part that to his credit is why he was able to do what he did in, in helping find 
his son's killer and also in helping chase down the things around this pill mill. But my first reaction was very similar. It was, wow, this is overwhelming. This is a lot. But it was also, I need to hug my sons. You know, there's, <laughs> yeah. there's an element to this that's, you know, he, he's calling into question throughout this, this journey that we're, we're going on with him how he parented, how he supported his son, or maybe could have supported him differently. And I think any parent considers those things and about creating avenues for their kids to feel like they can share and come to them in their times of need. So it's a, it's a very compelling story. Um, the amount of content that's available is uh, mainly because of, of the amount of recording he did, <laughs> which we can also dive into later. But, yes, uh, he recorded- yeah, that features heavily into the whole thing is this, uh, this the archival footage he has from whether it's the audio recordings he had with the police forces and, and inside the pharmacy, even with patients coming in and uh, home video, like, wow, what a what a, an amazing amount of material, which I would say is a character in this in this documentary itself is is that audio and video that he had it's actually a, a central character in this absolutely in this i mean it would, the documentary w- wouldn't happen without all that right and uh, and the story wouldn't happen without all that um audio recordings video recordings that that he had and uh so for me i i like these this style of documentary and um I like a lot of Netflix's productions um, as well. Um, it, it's it's very typical Netflix. Uh, if if that's something that people can can relate to as a as a concept, I mean, if you've watched something like Dirty Money, for instance, it's kind of along those lines in terms of documentary. Um, I agree with Justin. It is a bit disjointed in the sense that uh, it was the first kind of two episodes were really focused on. Dan Schneider, uh, the tragedy of his son, and finding uh, the the killer, uh, and then the second part is really about that opioid crisis, uh, and and the common link is obviously Dan Schneider and what he did uh, to first of all to solve his son's murder, which was drug related. And how that led into him being uh, a key part in uh, solving a like an, an an issue or or I guess I mean it, it was a, a crime related to uh, drugs as well in in his area uh, and then and then the wider yeah, it was another epidemic yeah, yeah. of itself the the, exactly. the crack epidemic was what his son right. got caught up in and which gets is just not really focused on in in this but it's it was the this was the early days of the opioid situation mm-hmm. coming off the crack epidemic which you know you could say is still a problem out there but that was the vehicle or the the start of this whole thing was the son actually was not involved in this issue this opioid issue it was the crack epidemic or crack issue you know drug deal gone gone wrong He's killed, and then it then the story really yeah. begins from there, for the first story. Right? Yeah, yeah. Because that's the first story, as you said. It's it's the his son and the crime, and this real pursuit of him trying to find his son's killer, 
and then the next story begins with really the doctor, the Dr. Cleggett. I mean, if I think about that first story and just the tenacity, that's what I wrote down, Justin, when you said his that relentless pursuit. I, the first thing I wrote down when I initially thought about us doing this reaction, if you will, is that is that he was this tenacious guy. And you know, I, I also said before in the in the prep, where's the humor in this? And maybe this is earlier than I expected to bring this question up, but I did find myself actually chuckling at times with just how insanely tenacious oh, yeah. he was. Absolutely. Throughout like where I was chuckling, just like how he was asking the police questions. Like it's like hey, why are you calling me at seven AM? <laughs> you know, like he's calling police officers at seven in the morning and, and you're chuckling about this, but obviously he was very passionate about the pursuit of getting to the bottom of this whole thing. But there was humor. A few times I did chuckle just that tenaciousness and he's a nice such a nice man too. And so I did laugh a few times. I don't, I don't know if you guys did, but I did, did chuckle at least. At least I, I was I was amazed. Like first of all, I, I just have to say how much I respect the character of Dan Schneider Senior, the pharmacist. You know, which is almost it does borderline on obsession, right? The guy was obsessed with finding his son's killer, understandably. Um, but where a lot of people will probably just say, well, you know, the police did everything um, and, you know, that's that's it. I'm just going to you know, try to move on. The guy did not, did not, you know, that just wasn't in his, in his head. He was just adamant about finding, finding the killer. And then sort of when that led to his sort of, you know, his crusade against um, uh, Dr. Cleggett, uh, I mean that, that that comes up again and again, right? His his tenacity, his borderline obsession with uh, with get with achieving his goal, and his meticulousness in recording absolutely everything. Right? It is incredible how every aspect of the story he, there is a there is a recording for that, whether it's audio or video, um, like a, a memo, something he can he can go back to. It is really, really impressive. In the first episode, they actually he says why when he started recording. It was that first call or two after the son's murder, where he was getting the runaround from the police. Right, like they just weren't. It, he was astounded by how mo little motivation they had, and, and he says in the documentary that's when I started recording these guys. So that if not for that resistance in the early part of this. He, he may not have recorded anywhere near as much material as he did. Well, to your point, maybe the second or third conversation he had with the FBI later on, the guy literally says, you're not recording this one, are you? And he goes, uh, no. No, oh, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. in terms of things that were kind of funny, I mean, there was kind of a, a Warner Brothers Looney Tune quality to the way that he was just the tenaciousness also meant he was also running headlong into trouble, right? So, yeah, he's literally mm -hmm. putting himself in danger he's being chased by dr claggett's goons thugs that are basically protecting her clinic this pill mill you know and i, I think we're in a spoiler free zone at this point right we're gonna pretty much dive into some of this yeah. stuff yes yeah you know, she has this clinic that's just operating at night right 
you know, you have everyone lining up like junkies and they're coming in, they're piling in at night into her clinic and they're, they're going to get their fix and she's charging an arm and a leg all in cash. Right. So like things like that were hilarious, you know, in, in not necessarily intentional ways, but the way that he was just kind of running in headlong into trouble is the other side of the sword of his tenaciousness, right? His tenacity to help bring his son's killer to justice, to help fight against Dr. Cleggett's clinic and eventually get her license revoked and shut down. All of that stuff is the tenacious part, but it's also he just he just throws himself out there. He's he's in danger with the thugs chasing him. Uh, his he's persistent to such a degree that he's just not hearing his wife or anybody else saying, you know, like it's time to let go or it's time to move on or it's time to protect mm-hmm. yourself. I mean, his wife literally says in one of the recordings, I'm going to hit you to anyone listening yeah. to this recording. I am hitting Dan now. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yes. Things like yeah. that were funny, but it was also a product of, of him. Right. Yeah, that's right. It was, we didn't get a lot of that material in his recordings, but you can only imagine how much his family was probably driven crazy by what he was doing. Absolutely. Even though I they mean, were all on the mission together to solve this. Well, maybe they weren't. Maybe they were they were bystanders in a lot of ways to his mission. Yeah. I mean, f- funny as it was at times, just, you know, his tenaciousness was, yes, um, not ten- tenaciousness is not a word, tenacity. Mm-hmm. Yes, so, excuse me. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh but at, at times i also just really felt um felt bad for his family right, right. because i imagine that the fact that he you know any family who has had a tragedy in their life um wants to just you know kind of mo- i think move on uh to the best of their ability mm. to just move, move on with the best memories you have of that person. And then just put mm-hmm. everything, just, you know, try to let it go. Right. Um, you don't want to be living with, with that grief all, all your life. And the fact that he was pursuing this so adamantly, I'm sure it would have, it would have just been really, really difficult on uh, his wife and, and his daughter to just have have to be constantly reminded of uh, of what happened. I liked and what uh, there was one part where the the daughter says in in the record. It was in that scene I think with the diner where they said He's, you're going to hit me or whatever. She the daughter says something like, "I you're recording this, aren't you? Because I can tell your voice <laughs> just got softer." <laughs> <laughs> so you you yeah. can imagine that he's he's he knows he's recording, and obviously he's recording some of these without yeah. their knowledge or he's not being extremely upfront about it and you know that also made me think too about when he was in the pharmacy recording Mm. these interactions Mm. they didn't they didn't get into any of that whether he was breaking any kind of doctor client privilege types doctor patient privilege type stuff he's not the doctor but it's still a medical situation so there were a couple times i was wondering i wonder if he had to, they had to clear any hurdles in this thing that, um, you know, people's voices, privacy issues around that, that, that was one thing that jumped out for me was how they were able to use a lot of this material. You know, they blocked out certain names on the prescriptions and things, but a lot of people's private information was shared in this documentary. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, maybe if not for all the recording, I don't know if all of these crimes would have been solved or the, or the, um, the clinic 
been shut down. I know they used a lot of the documents. They talked about that. You know, they, they, his treasure trove, as they called it, you know, all of the things that he had on hand at his house. But how much of that was admissible was in question because obviously they were still looking for, as they said, a smoking gun. They needed mm. him to find more direct evidence about something. And he even said the day when he had that young woman who came into his pharmacy, who was like 15, 16 years old, and she was uh, filling this uh, golden triangle, no, not golden triangle. What do they call it? The the Trinity, the Holy Trinity. Holy Trinity, drugs, yeah. Which, right, yeah, right, yeah. Which was a mixture of Oxycontin, Xanax, Xanax and um, Soma. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And apparently, I guess the, the, the latter two, Xanax and Soma, really heightened the feeling with the Oxycontin where it was more of the typical euphoric heroin experience. And this amount that had been prescribed to the 16-year-old would have likely OD'd her on first try. And that was his smoking gun. And he kept saying, I, I regret I didn't have my recorder that day. But I thought to myself, if he did have his recorder that day, would it have been admissible? Would, would it, mm. Did it actually work out better that he was not recording her and he was just the witness to it and actually... Wow, yeah. yeah. That, that was actually something that jumped out at me in a different way. Mm. My thinking was, how could you make this phone call without having your recorder? Of all the things you've oh, yeah. been recording, you're not going to record the call to the doctor? Yeah, I thought that was, um, you know, I, I'd imagine he could have just like, you know, gone home, got his recorder or, or found, found a way to, to record that conversation considering how important it is. I like yeah, a so good conspiracy theory. So what if he did record it and then they said to him, we can't use that. And he conveniently right. lost the recording and oh, said, yeah. oh, I don't know why I didn't have my recorder that day. Right, right. Evidence that would be necessary for the medical board to revoke her license. Yeah. But interesting on that theory, though, Justin. Um, <laughs> I like that. That that could very yeah, well if, be. I mean, if I was his wife or his daughter or friends or something, I mean, I'd, I'd have a hard time with his lack of boundaries, you know, with all of the, the recording and all of that. I. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm reading into it, but something I noticed when they kept showing video clips of his son, and, you know, he'd be like, oh, here's Danny, it's Christmas, blah, blah, blah. And you'd see his son kind of ducking out of the shots. I noticed that too, yeah. So was he uncomfortable or was he kind of sick of it? Whatever, I, I could be just projecting. But but I drive my it, kids crazy sometimes with, with it too. And I think a lot of kids, especially as they get older and mm -hmm. in those eight, that year, the years that we're talking about, that teenage, preteen years you start to get why are you recording i don't want to be filmed or i don't want to and and, and so i wondered if some of that I, was yeah i think that's just a very very natural reaction for for kids ar around that age group to just not want to be where the pimples you know, filmed, are starting recorded, and... taking photos of by parents yeah i mean i can i can relate just to back to the he didn't record dr cleggett uh scene I'm just kind of wondering as well. I mean, the reason for the call was to confirm that it was actually Dr. Cleggett who wrote that prescription, right? Because um, they wanted to, for, because he had the prescription, right? He, he had the actual paper, um, he, he photocopied it, and the thing that they wanted to avoid was, uh, you know, them going to the police or, or to, or, or to the courtroom and and it not and Dr. Clegg, Dr. Cleggett saying oh this is a forgery uh, so they wanted to prove that it was actually her who uh, who wrote it right who wrote that prescription and that's why I guess he called um, 
and then you know there there would always be the question of whether that recording would be admissible in court or not but um you know was his i guess then with just witness testimony enough i guess i guess it was because she did answer the phone mm. uh she did tell him you know who made you the doctor mm. um yeah. expletive uh and i guess that, that that's that's what stuck uh in that in that case so i mean was the recording even even necessary i guess in that case it, it wasn't would it would it have helped again again done not not quite sure but yeah. right yeah that's what i took from it yeah no, i was just gonna say i mean we we kind of i i went off on a tangent there for a second about you know his recordings and and specifically about um uh you know his his lack of boundaries and and how some of this led to this moment that we're talking about here that he didn't actually have the recording i think we should maybe do the listeners a little bit of justice here just in terms of like what this second half of the story is really about so after his son has passed and he still hasn't really passed through all of the grieving he kind of throws all of his energy into um, what is now becoming an epidemic of overdoses in their local community around opioids and what he comes to find out is that there are all these prescriptions coming on with the same name on it, this Dr. Cleggett. And this Dr. Cleggett has opened up a clinic in a fairly industrial part of town. Now, I'm not saying blue collar. I'm saying literally industrial. Not There's not even strip malls for the most part. It's just very far out. It's like warehouses and, and factories. Exactly. And she was originally a pediatrician or trained as a pediatrician and decided to go into pain management and quite rapidly had become a go-to place for people to get their prescriptions of things like opioids with fairly minor um, background or proof. It was just basically she would write whatever the person wanted. And uh, this young doctor uh, became quite successful doing it, so successful that she was uh, putting out hundreds of thousands of pills worth of prescriptions. And at one point, uh, when Dan gets involved, Dan Schneider gets involved, uh, he at first goes to the FBI and the FBI didn't really know how to handle it, but also knew that another agency was involved in the investigation. And they forwarded Dan to the DEA. And the DEA was a bit cagey with him, in his opinion, and wasn't really letting on too much. He had some theories as to why, and one of which was true, which was the fact that they actually had an ongoing investigation, including observation of her clinic. And they were building evidence on their own. And he was not one to let go of things, so he kept pushing and pushing and pushing from his side, which obviously could run up against their investigation and jeopardize mm -hmm their uh, secrecy of their investigation and eventually it kind of came to a head because the dea wasn't really capable or willing to prosecute because the deas were afraid of going after a doctor because a doctor was seen as being very noble as a profession yes and in many ways dan's persistence and pushing and everything else is is the linchpin in this it was the the catalyst for them getting to the point where they could actually go after uh Dr. Claggett. And eventually he finds out because of another pill mill that gets shut down. And it was on, I think, 60 Minutes, where a pill mill got shut down, I think, in Ohio, was it? Clark? Yeah, 
Yeah, it was a yeah, different was state. Ohio, yeah. 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 And he contacted the DA from that state, and the DA advised him that actually what you need to go to is the medical board. And the medical board has a different threshold than the DEA. The DEA has to prove without a reasonable doubt. The medical board just needs to call into question these things and then have a, a review of the doctor to see if there's something going on. So that almost is how reminds it, me of the Al Capone thing. You want to get the guy on crime, you're going to have to <laughs> go after tax is tax evasion. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. So the medical board basically said, you've got a lot of evidence here, but we need a smoking gun. And then that is what led us to this point that we're describing now where he he's in the pharmacy biding his time and he's trying to, to hold his tongue and just advise people as best possible and curtail anybody who's going to be potentially abusing it. And then he encounters this young woman who uh, was given a, a potentially lethal dosage uh, in her prescription, and uh, that's how he chased it down. And that's essentially what led to the potential trial of Dr. Claggett. And then she got in a near-fatal accident, which then led to some sympathetic sentencing on the part. Correct. I want to go DEA back later. Yeah. I want to go back just to a couple statistics that around what you were describing earlier, earlier, and that is that a normal doctor sees about 20 patients a day, according to one of the doctors who was featured in this, Dr. Lamke, I think her name was. Mm -hmm. She says, normally patients see 20, or sorry, normally doctors see about 20 patients a day, and she describes that as being an extremely full day. You're running off your feet. Dr. Claggett saw 76 patients per day on average. (laughs) So where's the time to actually talk about what's happening, examine the patient, go through the details, 76 patients per day. Um, And then in terms of some of the statistics here, 182,000 prescriptions she prescribed over only 10 pharmacies. This was, this was all, this was just over 10 pharmacies. There were more pharmacies than this. That's incredible. They equate that to millions of pills, millions of pills per year. And I think she clocked in one year, 1.8 million in cash. That was just the deposits. There was probably more. Right. So as you said, they're, um, they weren't able to act in in this case they they had several different agencies investigating the situation and for dan that obviously wasn't happening fast enough and you could tell when the fbi i think said here stay on the periphery with this you know just let this develop over the next few (laughs) weeks months and that was the worst thing they could have said remember what the detective said to him when he was trying to chase down his son's murderer i'm sure once he Ah, heard that it probably put him into overdrive yeah oh yeah yeah, I, I do want to also highlight Shane. Shane was the the informant who uh, gave um, the information that was needed to get uh, Jeffrey, the, um, the the person who actually killed his son, to get him convicted. And I mean, when I, I so I watched this parts one and two. It's a four part series. I watched parts one and two again last night just to get me fired up because it had been about a month since I'd seen this and both my wife my wife again who I thought oh for sure there's no way she's going to go around two with this she she agreed reluctantly to let me watch it again and um, we both just sat there and said imagine the courage that this woman had to finally muster up 
to to make her case to to be the informant and to be to give the information needed to get this this guy convicted you know she comes from the same neighborhood as the killer under an immense amount of pressure she she's they spend a lot of time trying to convince her to testify and this is her community that this killer comes from and there's so much threat to her life and one part i remember when they said they put her in witness protection and then she had a brick thrown through her car window with the words bitch i found you like witness protection i mean I always imagine witness protection. You're getting sent to some obscure, out-of-the-way place. I bet you all they did is just took her a few streets over or a neighborhood or two over and parked her in a a house with her four kids, I think it was. And that's not really witness protection. But what what a courageous, in the end, what a courageous story for her to turn her life around as she said she gave it up and seems to be clean right now but i i really think she's worth is worth mentioning just the bravery that would have gone into her going up there and facing the family of the accuser she's walking up the courtroom steps being yelled at like you know the whole the, the just to me that's something that we we have to highlight here and the fact that the killer was her what, best friend's yeah. son, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's just some that's some crazy shit. The whole thing around Shane was interesting. I I had a mixed reaction because of how they treated Shane in the narrative of it, and how they treat it in the narrative. I mean, it's a documentary. Documentary always has to have a narrative. It has to have a you know a, a vision to it. There's, there's an element to this, you know, where they kind of gloss over race and racism. You know, they gloss over the white flight from the Ninth Ward, Lower mm-hmm. Ninth Ward in New Orleans to people moving out to, to St. Bernard's Parish, which is where the Schneider family lived. You know, even he glosses over some of maybe how his family saw that dynamic at the time and when they moved out of there. And I'm not trying to paint him to be anything. You know, the South is the South and it's got some some... You know, a a lot of skeletons in the closet. But the way that they kind of treated her own story and losing her own older brother in this kind of like little one minute bit, and it becomes more about how, you know, Dan Schneider Jr., it shouldn't happen to him. He had so much going for him. Yeah. Why Why is that? Are Are we selling the blonde, white, blue-eyed thing a little hard here mm. you know for the audience like i'm a, i'm a bit sensitive yeah. to some of this stuff when i see it in the in these documentaries and you know, my ears peaked up a little bit about that but you know in the grand scheme of the different pieces like there's the part where dan schneider's really aggressively looking for the killer he's going door to door and at a certain po- point the uh, church leader or the the pastor is chaperoning him through the lower ninth ward, bringing him from door to door because it's not just that he's going, but it's the fact that he's angry and he doesn't want that combination of his anger and him going into a neighborhood that he's unknown to land him in trouble. But there's a part of that that's kind of understood too. If something happens to him, it's it means that there's more police presence. There's more trouble for people in the neighborhood. If something happens on the back end of what just happened, since it's already starting to get a certain amount of media attention, this pastor knows what he's doing. He's also protecting his constituents too. 
You know, he's not just protecting Dan. There's a piece of this of, you know, Absolutely. I'm protecting my neighborhood because if something now happens to Dan, then it's going to blow back on us and we're going to have increased police yeah. presence. We're going to have a, yeah. increased aggression. That's what happens in, in communities that are poor, black, Latino, where if something bad happens and then something bad happens again on the back end of that, it just gets worse for everyone there. And there's those little pieces are kind of glossed over. And I don't know if it's intentional or if it's just the people making it don't see it you know don't see it for what it, what it is but those pieces kind of stick out to me shane's story is amazing you know the fact that she was able to do that it it goes beyond the whole no snitching thing that again she makes us like a quick aside that's a very real thing and you know her and her children being at risk because of her coming forward and 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 also potentially testifying which she did um it, it was probably one of the most compelling pieces of the story um they did cover it a lot from the angle of the family chasing her down and contacting her sister and her mother and all these different people um but i, I mean i i i'm with you i would go beyond com you know commending her for her bravery in in handling that and doing something like that maybe because she had her own personal history with her older brother being lost to violent gun violence when when she was quite young and he was relatively young as well or if it was just purely out of the, the sake of you know she knew her friend's son was a problem and put you know that boy into the grave and could have hurt others too considering his upbringing and everything that happened to him and under um a lot of stress and pressure from dan i mean the guy was hounding her <laughs> you know just constantly calling her uh trying to get her to right. he uh, said to she, yeah, he went from wherever and, she went he found her and it's like yeah. She would move, and or you could, they included some. The call you were trying to make is to a disconnected number, and right, yeah, she, yeah. she hunted him. He hunted so, her down. Yeah, I mean, there's an element of good for her for you know, at the end of the day, testifying, even though uh, the guy she's trying to to help, um, was was really really badgering her. Uh, to get get her to do this um so I, I i there was an element of i also felt bad for for her for having to go through all that um n n let alone having witnessed a, a murder right which is which is traumatic in, in and of itself so let's let's switch to a little bit more about when things start to it was in episode three we get into the real meat around the pharma industry and in, in particular purdue mm. who really was training sales reps you know to be to come out of their training fired up and ready to go this guy chris davies i think's his name the the sales rep for for purdue who explains you know some of the incentives how uh, they were they were told there's this guy in in new orleans in this district this district rep who was making around eight hundred thousand dollars a year as a farmer rep to in and one of the most compelling things that he said was that you don't need, what was it he said? You don't need patient. You don't need to be a great salesperson. You just need good doctors or something. Like a great, yeah, good doctors. Yeah, yeah. Or like one good yeah. doctor. 
and the guy who was making that, you know, 800 grand uh, was in the district where Dr. Cleggett, I mean, Dr. Cleggett was his whale, basically. And, you know, they described these, um, you know, doctors as uh, uh, whales, monsters, amongst um, other things, uh, because they, they were, I mean, that, that was their sort of major source of revenue. Yeah, and the, the whole thing where he said that he would refer to the package insert, which um, when the doctors would be a little bit concerned about addiction and he would wave this package insert and say, no, the package insert said it has lower addictive properties. Do you know how hard it is to get these? FDA yeah, approved. You know how hard it is to get these package inserts made? It has to be approved by so many people. And then the doctors would, I guess, just be like, oh, yeah, true. And so the, the farm, the Purdue... And anyone else involved in this from the pharmacy side or the pharma side, the amount of deception and the promotional, the advertising that they did with commercials, you know, the whole um, idea that this is going to solve all your problems. It's, it's a 12-hour time-released thing. You can go to bed at, at 9 at night and wake up at 7, and it's the medication's still working. You'll get through the night, which obviously appealed to a lot of people who probably were used to four-hour-type treatments where you wake up at 2 a.m. in pain and you need to go and take more pills and disrupt your sleep. Well, this, this was 12 hours of pain relief. And I just got to add here, um, the the sales rep you mentioned, um, who was uh, sort of explaining uh, what was happening with Purdue at the time, I I mean when we talk about sort of comic elements in in the uh, in this series, I I really liked his character. <laughs> he dropped a lot of um, f bombs. That's the for guy. Sure. <laughs> oh, he he's dropped a lot of f bombs, and oh yeah, he's he's pretty slick. And and what I really liked about him was the fact that he was just so transparent in his self interest that like you just gotta you have to respect the guy right <laughs> he's like yeah. I'm here to make money yep. I'm like yes good like yeah. good for you man like you 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 go do that but then when he when he realized how you know um, how much trouble like Purdue was in and you know the all the all the problems associated with, with the opioid crisis how much uh, yeah. media attention it was getting he was like nah, like I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm staying out of this like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna touch this with yeah, a, like, he, 10 he foot didn't stick, say right? I need to come clean he said yeah. I need to get the fuck away from this <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah that guy was great that guy was great I mean if anything yeah. it'd be interesting to hear the stories of the uh, the guy who represented East New Orleans you know who was the the, the big 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 dog who was you know dealing mm. with the whales but yeah but yeah he was he was really fascinating very slick very interesting and very transparent to your point you could see what what he was lying about and all of that um specific to to the purdue company and that family oh my goodness they look like a bunch of ghouls yeah the, the sacklers the, yeah. yeah they do they do look like ghouls <laughs> the, the, the thought process you know to be at this place where you're making billions of dollars and for years just like the parallels they drew to the tobacco industry for years denying any kind of correlation to addiction just like the tobacco industry tried to stand up there what do they call them the, the seven dwarves i think right uh, mm. you know that that was the that that movie the insider with russell crowe and al pacino yeah. and christopher Plummer playing mike wallace from 60 minutes that they very aptly you know 
showed those executives up there one by one saying, I do not believe tobacco is addictive in their southern drawl. And then here we have the same type of thing going on. They put up the head of R&D, this major physician that works for Purdue, and saying it is not addictive. And then once the pressure reaches that point where they have to now rescind or even they're afraid of litigation, they have to now say, not necessarily publicly, but you know what? If we're going to have to deal with this pressure, instead of paying out, why don't we own the entire life cycle and create addiction facilities of our own to treat yes. the addiction and then literally say, yeah, it is inextricable addiction. And this is inextricable. And that was the scariest part of all is that this, this family could say, yeah, instead of paying out to these lawsuits, you know, we'll do it ourselves and we'll make money on the back end of all these people. And we'll just, We'll, we'll keep them in the cycle, too. So we'll make money on both ends once they go back into the, into the opioid addiction. I, I pulled some data from a company called Swiss Re. Hmm. Some of you guys may know, know these folks. Um, they have an interesting paper called the, the Property and Casualty Trend Spotlight, and they talk about the opioid mm-hmm. crisis. And because we were focused mm-hmm. on New Orleans was the most of the focus of this. I, I thought this would be interesting to share. So it says, uh, according to them, they said in 2012, there were 259 million prescriptions written for opioids, more than enough for every adult in the U.S. population. In 2013, it was estimated that nearly 2 million people were dependent on or abusing opioid prescriptions. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that in 2015, more than 33,000 people died from opioid overdoses, which is quadruple the number from 1999, which is around when this documentary first starts. Um, They said that um, the total of the prescriptions, uh, sorry, um, more than 33,000 people died from opioid overdoses. at a total cost of more than $500 billion for the year. In 2016, the CDC estimated that 116 people die every day from opioid-related overdoses, with another 12 million misusing prescription opioids. 12 million. Um, This one story here of a a place called Larry's Drive-In Pharmacy in (laughs) West Virginia... Sounds reportedly legit. distributed nearly 10 million doses of hydro, hydrocodone and oxycodone in 10 years. Larry's is located in Boone County, which has a population of less than 25,000 people. Mm-hmm. And I was reading here, it said uh, key facts, close to $2 trillion has been spent fighting this whole thing. $2 trillion. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Can I just like jump in for a moment and, you know, this, not, I mean, not just this documentary, but overall opioid crisis, um, opioid, ep- opioid epidemic, and, um, you know, all this happening in the U.S., you know, I, I always look at the U.S. And, and think, you know, what a dramatic country <laughs> where... You know, this stuff just does not happen in in other countries, mm-hmm. right? 
maybe in in in, in, in some things happen in different ways every country has its problem every every place has its problem i get it but in the developed world right i mean and i'm not saying this is a problem unique to the to the us but how does this happen right i mean well, i think you were saying I, like, it was unique to the us though didn't you well, I mean, not, well, this the, the the opioid epidemic I think was was pretty unique to the U.S. and there and there are precursors to it, right? I mean, um, vets returning from from the Vietnam War, um, you know, uh, what what started off with with crack cocaine um, or with like crack yeah, crack um, led into sort of uh, the uh, sort of initial opioid crisis with with. You know, oxycontin and um, and these prescri- prescription pain medications. Um, when the U.S. government cracked on, cracked down on that, then it was um, uh, heroin, right? Uh, and then from heroin, it goes to fentanyl. Yep. Like, how does this just? How does this happen, right? I mean, is this that? Uh, it's just it's it's insane. It's insane. <laughs> That's what I'm just trying to say. Does it's it have anything to do with that American dream thing? You know where. It, America is this place where you can you can take something and, and make a hell of a lot of money at it. Um, dr- there's a lot of greed, obviously, in this. You know, people looking the other yeah. way, and maybe that's an unfair way to to put it. But but I mean, think about it. Like OxyContin. I mean, why was it? Why was it? You know, why were they able to sell it? Because it was FDA approved. Yeah, they relaxed. The, right? They relaxed the opioid restrictions right yeah right exactly. for a lot yeah, they even yeah. said for a long time doctors were very against introducing opioids in, in in strong amounts into the pain management area of treatment for for patients like yeah i mean and i don't know to what extent the the research on that was uh, available at that time but you know and you know talking as a person and you know today here in 2021 uh you know it's it's sometimes you just really can't um judge i i can't really judge what was happening back then um because i just don't know sort of to what standards they were looking at to what uh, to what extent there was research but you you'd think that you know if if doctors at even at the time were reluctant to give out these really strong pain medications like how how was it that this became a a, a major issue in the US like you know what happens like what what are the precursors for that to happen right and and that's what just boggles me i i don't like I'm, this is all you know just my just my opinion i'm not basing it on any i don't I haven't done any research or anything i'm not when i say it, it, this some of these problems are unique to the united states yes some of them are some of them aren't right there are uh you know drug problems in, in other advanced countries as well but it seems very profound in the in the U.S. is what I'm well, saying. If you look at what, where did this, how did it happen? I mean, Purdue spent a ton of money promoting this drug, and or lobbying they, before that, right? And and yeah. this whole thing that uh, the one doctor they have that uh, I guess it looks like it's part of some promotional material, maybe not to the general public, but perhaps to the doctors. With this, I didn't catch the guy's name. But it was that grainy video from the 80s where he was describing this whole thing about a pseudo-addiction hmm. that um, Purdue was actually saying the words, that's not a real addiction. They need pain relief, so give it to them. 
how do they get away with that? That like that's what really just blows my mind. Well, Purdue in the end is f- fined eight billion dollars, I think it was, and uh, went out of business in two thousand nineteen. The Sackler family looks like they made off with like bandits and. I think they were already starting to channel some of the money into Swiss bank accounts or, or something as this was starting to hit the fan. So essentially why they filed for bankruptcy to protect themselves. Yeah. Because I mean, that's, yeah. that's all that's happening now. I mean, there's litigation against Walmart right now because they're major pharmacy holders across the U S mm. there's tons of States that are banding together right now to try and fight a lot of this. Uh, and to your point about Swiss re, there's a lot of major insurers right now that are having to deal with all kinds of claims related to the opioid ep- epidemic during a time like COVID actually just, just similar to what happened in uh, post layman shock and, and with, with uh, the economy tanking for a couple of years there and the housing crisis, 07, 08, 09, kind of bleeding into 10 as well. Those are the periods that that people are most concerned about spikes in these types of things. And right now, that's what they're saying. They're saying that during COVID, Mm, there is definitely an increase in use in opioids and and abuse. Well, the Hurricane Katrina thing, right? That that hit New Orleans of all the places it's going to hit. It hits this county and... and, um, caused a, a huge spike in the problem as well was when hurricane katrina mm-hmm. came through and that was also an interesting point is that the guy's material was something because it was stored in the attic it yeah. didn't get destroyed tragedy after tragedy but the guy's uh, audio recordings were yeah were safe in the attic so in my neighborhood where i used to live a place called pickering ontario it's uh, about half an hour from where I live now. We used to, um, I think about a couple of buildings that were not far from where we lived at that time, five minutes, two minutes on a bike. My dad used to uh, teach me how to drive in the parking lot uh, of these these buildings. And coincidentally enough, one of the buildings where I learned to drive was a Purdue office. No way. And I remember seeing wow. that name, Purdue Frederick, uh, on this sign as I'm learning as a 16-year-old how to drive, and my dad's there, and we're in this parking lot. It's a Saturday or a Sunday. There's nobody there, right? It's, so it's a perfect place to learn how to drive. But who would have thought that here I am learning how to drive in the parking lot of what eventually became this absolute scandal of, of a situation, a company that at that time was pumping this out promoting this, doing everything, all this bad stuff. Eventually, in 2019, they're out of business. Just uh, who would have thought? A moment ago, you mentioned, you know, we could talk about this for a while, and I'm not sure if you're, you know, reaching that point where you want to wrap on this, but very briefly, there was something that before we talked about setting up and discussing this documentary, you, you sort of mentioned, you know, personal experience or any kind of personal connection to this to this type of area i do have one small story i was someone i worked with who's originally from kansas he grew up on a farm i mean it couldn't be more stereotypical and Hmm. his father was setting up a trailer by the grain combine that's where all the grain comes out of the silo into the trailer so they can load it up and haul it away. And he had brought the trailer over to this area with the truck and then unhitched it and dropped down those legs, the ones that stabilized the trailer so it could sit flat on the, on the ground or even on the ground level. And something happened. Something wasn't 
fastened or locked in or whatever. And the trailer either slid off the hitch or the legs themselves loosened and it came down on his leg mm. and the entire weight came down on his leg. And eventually they, you know, they were able to, to lift it again and get it off of him and then pull him out. And his leg was wrecked and somehow they were able to save his leg and in rehab and going through the post surgery experience, they gave him opioids for pain management. And eventually the prescriptions stop because they want you to, to wean off and to, to regulate yourself and deal with the pain. And he had other people around him who had gone through similar experience and he saw them when they no longer had access to the pills because of how much they cost. Because if you're buying them on the black market, they can cost anywhere from 30 to $80 per pill as yeah. they outlined in the documentary. And you need at least one a day. Oftentimes it's two doses in a day. It's basically once every 12 hours. Yeah. And he saw some of the people around him uh, going to heroin because it's significantly cheaper and it still keeps them in that same pocket. And what he ended up actually getting into was long distance running. He got into extreme long distance running, eventually became an, an ultra marathoner. But basically, he, what he chased was a running high. And it took him a while to get to that place. And, you know, he admits he had some hiccups in that initial stage. But he's, he's like, I'm not going down this road. And he said he had to find something that would create that euphoric feeling. And that's what he found. And he's, he's a long-distance runner. He runs very long distances on a daily basis. I think he's doing, like, something like 15 to 20 miles a day just on a regular day. So, so he was able to do that after a injury to his leg. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. So that's a positive story, but one born out of just absolute horror to your point, Salim, you know, just about how is it that this, this has taken a hold in the U S and yeah, it's a tremendously sad, sad affair and one that we're far from being over with, but absolutely. Yeah. Well, we wanted to talk about this documentary because of uh, how it made us feel, how the messaging in behind it, uh, this whole opioid thing is a, is a tragic, tragic situation. But what an amazing story by Dan Schneider, the mm. relentless pursuit, that tenacity that ultimately led to this, um, that Purdue Frederick uh, going down and, uh, you know, I actually sent him a Twitter message uh, just saying if, you know, just how much I thought I respected what he did. And I actually thought, guys, a legend. I think we can get Dan Schneider to come on. We talked about this. Well, I why mean, not? Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Seems like a cool guy. <laughs> I'm sure he loves to talk. Send him a recording of the, of the episode. He might appeal to the recording. Ah, yeah. Great idea. Well, Dan Schneider, if you're listening, We'd love to have you come on our show. You know, hats off to you for the, the efforts that you, you made, and, and it was very inspiring to, to all of us. This episode is brought to you by Pace Painting. Pace Painting, serving all your painting needs, whether commercial or residential. Reach Pace Painting at paintwithpace at gmail.com or via their Facebook page, Pace Painting, Inc. Or call... Peter at 289-356-7744. Paint with pace.
Let's lighten it up. We have a weird news story Justin's brought to us today. Justin, why don't you share our, our another story out of Japan, which is always a source of good material. So why don't you share what you got there? <laughs> yeah, this is this is kind of a unique story. And maybe, Clark, you could put the link to it in the show notes as well for, for the listeners. So apparently, recently, 10 Yakuza, which would be organized crime, members were arrested for stealing sea cucumbers from the ocean. That's right. Sea cucumbers. Yeah, what are so, these sea cucumbers? Tell us about that. <laughs> uh, honestly, I'm not, they're not too vegetables, familiar. right? They're, they're yeah. fish, aquatic life, right? Yeah, they are aquatic life. Um, and my understanding is that uh, the sea cucumbers are a delicacy amongst many different Asian cuisines. Uh, so much so that they fetch extremely high amounts of money on the black market. Uh, they are strictly regulated in some places, but here not as much. So what ends up happening, it makes it a bit easier to ship abroad in large quantities without drawing too much attention. But according to some of the reports, the sea cucumber black market can be as lucrative as drugs for the organized crime groups here in Japan. So... Basically, what happened was um, these sea cucumbers, which can fetch a high price, you know, in places like China, where they're you know seen as a folk remedy and are, are in throughout a lot of the cuisine. Uh, the yakuza have cultivated relationships. Uh, they've cultivated relationships within the coast guard, for that matter, uh, who help even advise them uh, as to where they may or may not be. So they can go ahead and do these things. But uh, recently, the government said they would tighten some of the rules surrounding sea cucumber exports. And uh, what has happened recently, there was a patrol car that spotted a car parked on the shore in the, in the town of Omu. Uh, this is in Hokkaido, the northern island above the main island of Japan, Honshu. And they questioned the driver. And while they were questioning the driver uh, in kind of a slapstick fashion, a uh, rubber boat, a uh, kind of fast boat, kind of pulled up with oxygen tanks, radios, and other equipment, uh, came ashore as the cop was questioning this person on the shore. Uh, and while there were no sea cucumbers on the tiny boat, uh, in keeping with a lot of the past incidents, they did kind of notice that a lot of times what they do is the poached uh, sea cucumbers are instead loaded onto high-performance speedboats, Miami Vice style, yes. uh, that are capable of outrunning the Coast Guard, and they're whisked away. So they'll do that off-coast, and then when they come onto the coast, they don't have any of the product with them. So uh, when the coast is then clear, they'll then bring those uh, boats with the with the product and load them onto to trucks. Um, but uh, in the incident in Kagawa last June, there were 12 men caught on tape and arrested for trying to move 100 keys, 100 kilograms of this contraband, this contraband's cucumbers. And when they, uh, when they found out and investigated a bit further, they connected the 10 members to uh, one of the sub-branches of the Yamaguchi-gumi Yakuza family. That's the, that's the large family that oversees everything. That is literally uh, the organized crime head family. So the, the maximum penalty for poaching these cucumbers is six months in prison, which, you know, as they posed it, is not much for, mm -hmm. for Yakuza members. Sure. But, uh, but you know, they kind of make the joke about how, you know, what do you do when you sit down in the, in the, the 
the mess hall and say, what are you in for? <laughs> <laughs> well, according to the, uh, the article, I, I just caught up with the more wayward souls caught up in the glitz and glamour of the illegal sea cucumber trade. Glitz and glamour. What a title. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, as a point of reference for the listeners, you know, organized crime, they, they have a big hold on crystal meth and all kinds of other things. And uh, if there's something that's a little bit less illegal and and also fetches prices similar or higher, I mean, I, good on them for doing something that's not harming people as much. Absolutely. But I, I wonder about the ecological impact. Maybe that's something that they could dive into another time. <laughs> it's opportunistic for sure. And even if you look at, yeah, the, the relatively light penalty versus murdering people or trafficking drugs, Six months in jail, you just do your time, and it's just cost of doing business. Plenty of plenty of young pups willing to jump out and do that. Well, gents, uh, good to be back on a, an episode with you guys, and uh, looking forward to the next time. Likewise, likewise. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks on. for uh, thanks for having us. Yeah, signing off from Tokyo, Justin and Salim, and we'll see you on a future episode. <laughs>